come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 84 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, I have going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones number 11, where I'm going to have featured reviews of The Black Cat from 1941, and then I have this synced up with Seder. Now, they're not necessarily... It's kind of a more of like a family kind of double feature type thing here as the subject matter is a little bit different but I did think it makes for kind of an interesting type you know pairing there and then also on this episode I have mini reviews of The Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It I Saw the Devil We Need to Talk About Kevin The Skin I Live In and then the last film that I watched for this week is The Tall Man I don't really think there's anything else that I need to get you up to speed with so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a brief break before I get into those mini reviews and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini review this week this is one that I wasn't necessarily sure if I was going to make it a featured review or not but I end up deciding that I'd rather talk about the other featured film so this is going to be my first mini review is for The Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It. This is from here in 2021. It was directed by Michael Chavez. This is from a screenplay by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, who also helped come up with the story along with James Wan. And this is based on characters from Chad Hayes and Carrie W. Hayes. This stars Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmiga, and Raoui O'Connor. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between the United States and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the Warrens investigate a murder that may be linked to a demonic possession. So this is a movie that I knew I would end up seeing once it got announced. I'll be honest, when I saw the title, I wasn't the biggest fan, and this is something that I'll end up kind of getting back into a little bit later, as it's really just a line that was used in a real interview, and for whatever reason, they liked it enough to make it be, you know, the subtitle here. 
but this is also one that I had heard mixed things about by some people that I respect in the horror community. But I, you know, did pretty well with avoiding spoilers outside of that. So where I want to start is that this being based on a true story. I will admit, I haven't looked into the actual case that they're saying that this is based off of. I do believe that the Warrens helped out the Glatzel family and that there really is a case file. I don't believe they did most of what happened in this movie, though. It is based on real people and recounting some real events, or at least their version of it. I don't want to delve too much into this or how the Warrens were in real life, but I at least wanted to point out this to start with because it did make me chuckle. Now, going from there, before seeing this movie, I did see some images pointing to how much this movie is borrowing from The Exorcist. We get an interesting variation on the legendary image that would become the poster within the first five minutes of the movie. I thought it was a good touch. Another comparison could be the fact that they get into an exorcism that doesn't go as planned with a character calling the demon into themselves. Now, I do apologize if I'm spoiling the classic from the 1970s, but this all happens within the first 10 minutes of this movie, so I don't really feel like it's necessarily a spoiler. I don't think this hurts the movie. It is just something that I really wanted to point out that I had noticed it and others had, you know, kind of brought it to my attention before seeing this. Now, for the story here, we get an interesting premise. This feels a lot like the exorcism of Emily Rose in that we're trying to prove demonic possession in a court of law. This movie here doesn't use the courtroom nearly as much as the other one, so that doesn't bog it down. I should point out, though, I really like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, so I don't think it necessarily ruins the movie, but I'm just saying this movie doesn't use that as much. What is really we're getting here is it's given us the uphill battle that the Warrens are trying to climb in order to help Arnie. It works in the movie's favor going back to the 1980s, where we you know, have more of the satanic panic, and you could possibly sway a jury more than you could in today, in my opinion. Now, obviously, the Warrens now have passed away and everything like that, so that's partly why they couldn't do anything back in the day. But I'm just saying that when they were younger and able to do some of this stuff was back in the 80s. Now, something we also have to do here with sequels is constantly raise the stakes. I like what we're doing here. We looked at the Enfield poltergeist in the previous movie, and they also used the nun as a major villain there. In order to go bigger, I like that we're dealing with a demon that is being summoned by someone with the occult. There is a much bigger plot going on here with everything, but that is what it boils down to in a nutshell. I was on board with that. Something else I wanted to include here would be, I like what they do here to limit Ed in this movie due to him having a heart attack during the opening sequence. It isn't just a plot device to allow the haunting to progress, it is a nagging thing that we see throughout. Then the last part of the story that I really want to bring up here is, I saw some people griping about. There isn't necessarily stakes for Ed and Lorraine. There is a sequence in the trailer, which in part is why I don't watch trailers. This movie does have them being involved in the haunting that is trying to stop them during their investigation. My take is that the families that they're helping are usually the ones in danger. The Warrens need to save them before it is too late. I'm fine with shifting this a little bit over here to make the Warrens be the ones in peril, at least partly, even when they aren't with the family. But I never feel like they're truly in peril, and that's my issue with series when you have, you know, iconic characters as well. Now, speaking of which, I think I'll go into the acting next. I like Wilson and Farmiga in these roles. I feel like they've taken them over. I know Ed and Lorraine were real people, but these are the cinematic versions of them, which are much different from the actual people. I don't think their performances are great here, but I feel like they're a legit married couple that likes to help people. I thought that O'Connor was solid as Arnie. There is something about him where he's timid, so I like where his character ends up. Sarah Catherine Cook is cute, and I thought she works well as Arnie's love interest, who is sticking by him. 
Julian Hilliard is fine as the boy. He does some really good stuff with the possession scenes and thereafter. John Noble is really creepy from the moment we get to meet him as the character of Kastner, who's a former priest. This could also be said about Eugenia Bondurant and her role. Aside from that, I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. I think the next I'll go to the effects. There is quite a bit of CGI here, and being that this is a big-budget haunting and possession movie, you're going to have that. What I will say is this actually worked for me. They do some creepy stuff that pop up behind characters and from shadows, which I will also give credit there to the cinematography. Now, there is some creepy stuff with body contortion that works. They couldn't do this with a human person just with how much they're going and how far they go with it, but there are some decent practical effects that are mixed in there, I'm sure, and overall, I'd say that the effects were pretty solid for me. I didn't really have any issues there. Then finally, I really briefly want to talk about the sound design. I think it does some really good stuff with the demonic whispering and roaring, you know, when characters are supposed to be possessed. That stuff fits in as creepy. I think that the soundtrack, especially the use of this Blondie song, was good. My only issue comes from the stingers with the jump scares. I'm not going to rant on it and just, I'm going to say is that it just feels cheap at times. But I will say there was one that did startle me in this movie, so I will give credit to that one. So then in conclusion here, I think this is an enjoyable movie. Do I think it's groundbreaking? No, I do not. This is an entertaining film that I think is pretty well done. Being based on a true story is a bit laughable to me. I do think that we have some stakes that were raised from the previous movie, and we have an interesting story here that we're following, and the acting works to bring the characters to life. I think the effects were good, the cinematography works, and I'm mostly positive on the sound design. The movie's just lacking a bit for me to where things go. If you like the Conjuring universe, then definitely watch this one to continue the story. There are better and scarier haunting possession films that are out there, though, in my opinion. So my rating here for The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, is a 7 out of 10. And then I also got to watch I Saw the Devil. This is by the original title of Ang Ma Ro Bo At Da. And this is directed by Ji Woon Kim. And then the screenplay is from Park Hoon Jung. And then it looks like Kim also did the adaptation. This stars Lee Byung Hwan, Chao Min Suk, and Juan Guk Hwan. If I mispronounce any of those names or anything going forward, I do apologize. And then this is an action crime drama horror thriller film that is from South Korea. It is currently sitting on a 7.8 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being a secret agent exacts revenge on a serial killer through a series of captures and releases. So this is a movie that I learned about thanks to podcasts. It was one that I put on my list, and I've been meaning to check it out for some time. And I've heard a lot of people saying how good it was, and that, you know, made me want to watch this even more. And I'm now getting that chance thanks to the Summer Challenge series for the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2010s. Now, where I'm going to start off here is that this movie runs 2 hours and 24 minutes. And despite how long it runs, I don't really feel like that's a major issue that I have with the movie so where I'm going to start then next would be, is this a horror movie or not? For me, I can see both sides. This is a violent revenge film, but I think with how far they take things and the brutality, it goes into the horror genre for me. Now for this movie, for all intents and purposes, this is a two-man show. I want to break down our two leads. We have Su Huan, who is portrayed by Byung Hun. He's a special agent and is highly trained and has some gadgets that most police wouldn't have. I like that he is so in love with the character of Ju Yuan that what happens to her broke him. It doesn't help that Jang is right there with him. This is her father who is a former police chief. 
and he wants to help. What is interesting here, though, is that he's given up his humanity, and that is Su Huan, in order to torture the person that did everything to her of Keong Chul. This isn't necessarily in the literal sense. He just shows up, thwarts his plans by beating the heck out of him. He wants to hurt him and make him suffer like he has been suffering. This is an interesting kind of look as it makes our hero somewhat villainous. And I think some of the better movies can blur lines like this. Especially I feel like westerns can do this quite well if they're done properly. What he has decided to do here though is really, you know, makes me think of that old saying of when seeking revenge dig two graves. He is destroying that part of himself but the problem is that he doesn't realize how much of a monster he is dealing with. Now with that last thing I said there, I really want to shift this over to Keung Cho. He is an interesting introduction here in this movie of him attacking Ju Yuan. I like what we get to learn more about him, and the more that we do, the more that we can see he's a monster. His father doesn't find anything to be of worth with him. His mother is an enabler that is apologizing for things that he has done, and I mean, all she's really apologizing for is that he's abandoned his family. Now, his son loves him, but he is hurt by the abandonment. Keong Chul is calculating and quite dangerous. There's this interesting aspect that we also get here that gets revealed with Tae Joon, who's portrayed by Mu Suong Cho. He's a friend of Kyung Chul and a monster in his own right as a cannibal serial killer. The two of them are friends, but Tae Joon is scared of him. We also learn through this that Kyung Chul decides to do something, like get his revenge back here. He won't be stopped. This made my heart jump when we see him as he turns the tables to get his revenge back on Su Huan. Now, since I've covered them as characters, I think I'll go to the acting next. Byung Hun is great as Su Huan, and the same can be said for Min Sik as Kyung Chu. What is interesting here is that these characters are different, but still somewhat similar. One is good as a secret agent, but he's given up his humanity to punish Kyung Chu. But then we also have the serial killer here that, despite knowing what he's done, I do feel bad for him a bit when he is, you know, keep being attacked. And he is willing to go as far as it takes. And I would say that the rest of the cast just rounded this out for where we need to push these characters to end up. Then I'll next go to the effects. One thing I'll give Korean films is how brutal they can be. The effects that we get here are practical. And I'll be honest, there were quite a few of them that really made me cringe. We have things like blood and gore that look so real. There's a gross out scene with, I'm not even sure if this was vomit or feces, that made me gag with what was being done. The movie is also doesn't shy away from showing violence towards characters as well. There is any CGI here, it was well done, and I couldn't necessarily tell the difference. Aside from that, I would say that the cinematography is also really good, especially when showing certain things that are callbacks or making us focus on something that is important. So then the last thing I'll go into here would be the soundtrack. For the most part, I would say that it fits and it didn't necessarily stand out. There are some songs that are more calming and they're synced up with scenes that are a bit more horrific. I'm usually a sucker for this, and I also like that Su Huan is able to hear what Kyung Chul is doing and can track him as well. This adds some elements as this movie progresses on top of that. So then in conclusion here, I'm really glad that I finally got to see this movie. It is a violent revenge film that really showcases two great performances. There isn't a lot in the way of a deeper commentary outside of losing your humanity to revenge. It really shows what happens when you push someone to their limits and underestimating your enemy. This all really works for me. The effects that we get are quite brutal and I will say that the sound design fits along with the soundtrack. Something I'll be honest here about is runtime feels warranted for everything that we get, so I don't really have any issues with that. 
Overall, I'd say that this is a great film. I can't recommend it to everyone due to its brutality, but if you can stomach it, I'd watch this movie. I'll also warn you this is from South Korea, so it is subtitled. So if you can work through that, it is definitely worth your time. So my rating here for I Saw the Devil is a 9 out of 10. And then I also watched We Need to Talk About Kevin. This is from 2011. This is directed by Lynn Ramsey, who also helped come up with the screenplay with Rory Stewart Kinnear. And then this is from the novel by Lionel Shriver. This stars Tilda Swinton, John C. Riley, and Ezra Miller. This is a drama mystery thriller film, and I also think it's horror, so I'll get into that here in a little bit. But this is a co-production between the United Kingdom and the United States. This is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... Kevin's mother struggles to love her strange child despite the increasingly dangerous things he says and does as he grows up, but Kevin is just getting started and his final act will be beyond anything anyone imagined. So this is a movie that I blindly took home as a pre-street while I was working at Family Video. I remember being enamored with what I saw and just feeling cold after watching it. It helped that I came into blind for that first viewing. Now to get into this film, there isn't a lot to the story. I did find it interesting that it's based off of a novel, and it's one that I'm intrigued to check out now. The first thing I should go into is I know some people question if this is horror or not. I think with what Kevin does and just how terrifying the progression is of his character, it falls in the adjacent to the genre. Watching it again, it made me feel so uncomfortable that I still feel confident it is a horror movie to me. And then to start breaking everything down here, we have a woman by the name of Ava who is portrayed by Tilda Swinton that didn't want to settle down, got pregnant, and then resented her son of Kevin because of it. It then becomes a question, though, of how much can you blame Ava and how much of it falls on Kevin himself for where things end up. Now, where I really want to start delving into would be Ava and a little bit with Franklin here, who is her husband. It seems that during their fling, they didn't really talk much about what each person wanted. Ava loves to travel. We see that she has a room set up where when Franklin convinces her to move out of the city and she decorates it with maps. That urge is still there to travel but she has accepted her life as a mother to Kevin. Now, I currently do not have children, but I do want them. Eva clearly doesn't when Kevin is a toddler and as a boy. She is going through the motions, it feels like. I've also been told that children are quite intuitive, and I think that is especially true here for Kevin. I'll get more into that shortly. The last thing I really wanted to share here is that I don't really think that Eva and Franklin are on the same page when it comes to parenting. She tells him once to not wake up Kevin as she finally put him to sleep. She also believes that Kevin is doing some horrible things to spite her, and he thinks she's being dramatic about it. We see that a lot of this is from you know her point of view, so from what we're seeing, she is right. Now, I think next I should delve into the character of Kevin. This child is a sociopath. I think this is from genetics and just happens. I do think that Eva plays into this as well. She is convinced there is something wrong with him as he is slow in his development. She actually takes him to the doctor believing he could be autistic. The doctor disagrees though. Kevin is quite intelligent and from a young age learns that he can play his parents off of each other. It is really only when he is sick does he warm to Eva. Once better though he goes back to being cold yet again. Now there's some interesting aspects here where Kevin gains power over Eva for breaking his arm. She is afraid of the consequences, but it isn't good for where Kevin ends up, and that is something extremely horrific. Now that will take me to the last aspect of the story, which is the present day for Eva. With what Kevin did, 
I'm going to stay vague there to avoid spoilers here. It has ruined her life in many ways, especially staying in this town, as everyone hates her, it seems. They throw paint on her car and her house. One woman hits her, another breaks all of her eggs, and Eva buys them still. I feel like her self-esteem is broken, and she feels like she deserves everything, and it is quite depressing, if I'm going to be honest. There is some blame to be shouldered here, but not to the extent that she does, in my opinion. So I think I should take this over next to the acting. What is interesting is that this is really a two-person movie with Eva and Kevin going against one another in a sense. What is interesting, though, is that one of these characters is played by three different actors at different times. Swinton does a great job as playing Eva, and she plays this role so well and garners such sympathy from me, and she plays these oddball-type characters perfectly. The problem, though, is that I also blame her a bit, too, but so it makes her such a tragic and complex figure. I think that Miller brings such an arrogance to this teenage version of Kevin, it borderlines on terrifying, to be honest. Jasper Newell plays from the ages of like six to eight, and we're seeing the beginning versions of what will become the Ezra Miller version. He knows how to manipulate people, and he's just practicing this. Then we have Rock Dewar as the solid as the you know toddler version. What really works there is there's so much understanding he has in his eyes and from his blank stares. I really like John C. Riley as this character who is more of a rock and thinking things are more normal than what they are. You can just feel the strain between Eva and Franklin, and I'd say that the rest of the cast really helps to push our characters to where they end up. So next I really want to go into the effects and cinematography. For the former, we don't get a lot of them, but we also don't need a lot. They do well in showing us little things to allow us to fill into the blanks. Everything that did seem to be done practically, which I'm always a fan of, the major thing here though would be the color scheme. There was a bit of trivia that I found on the IMDb page that states that almost every shot has red, blue, yellow, and white. This makes sense in the end as to why. Now, the color red is the most prominent of them. Now, I've wanted to rewatch this one with Jamie for some time, and she pointed a lot of this out here on her first viewing. I'm assuming this is signifying rage as well as blood, and the movie has such character, though, with the cinematography, and I enjoyed that as well. And the last thing I would go into would be the soundtrack and sound design. I think the selections that they picked have an interesting dichotomy. The songs are bright and cheery, but what we're seeing on the screen isn't so much. I think the movie plays here so well with most of it being during the day and then the sunlight. This lures you in a bit of a false sense of security that is shattered by things that Kevin says and does. It really worked for me, to be honest. So I think that's about the extent of what I wanted to go to for this movie. So this is an interesting concept and has an event that is way too normalized today in society than it should be here in the United States. We have an interesting look at what it takes to raise a psycho or a sociopath. How much blame should Eva take and how much of this just falls on Kevin's nature? To see how broken she is in the present is heartbreaking. I think the cinematography here is well done along with the color scheme and the soundtrack. The acting helps bring these characters to life as well. Overall, I'd say this is a really good movie, bordering on great. It isn't an easy watch, so I can't recommend it to everybody, but if this sounds interesting, I would definitely give this one a watch. So my rating here for We Need to Talk About Kevin is an 8.5 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have The Skin I Live In. This went by the original title of La Piel Que Habito. This is from director Pedro Almodovar. This comes from the novel by Thierry Jonquet that was called Tarantula. And then Pedro also helped write this in collaboration with Augustin Almodovar. And then this stars Antonio Banderas, Elena Anya, 
and Jan Cornette. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from Spain. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a brilliant plastic surgeon haunted by past tragedies creates a type of synthetic skin that withstands any kind of damage. His guinea pig, a mysterious and volatile woman who holds the key to his obsession. So this is another movie that I remember during my time working at Family Video. I didn't realize it was a horror movie, or I may have taken it home when it was a pre-street. What I do remember was the song that was used during the trailer, as it was on the screener DVD that we would have to play in the store to entice customers to rent movies that they might not know a whole lot about. Now I'm finally getting around to seeing this, thanks to the Summer Challenge series for the 2010s over on the podcast Under the Stairs. And I did actually luck out as this was being shown at the Gateway Film Center for Fright Club. So something I want to give credit to this movie is that I wasn't expecting for it to go where it went. That is something that really impressed me if I'm going to be honest. Now where I want to start here would be that I learned that this, you know, right before the movie that it was based off of a novel. And that something that was brought up by the hosts were that this movie does have some similarities to Eyes Without a Face. I get a lot of vibes of that here. Now, Robert, who was Banderas, lost his wife in a car accident, where this other classic, his daughter, was disfigured in a similar way. He was working on a new and stronger skin, so he thought that maybe Vera, who in this is portrayed by Ananya, was injured and needed this help. Where this movie went, though, is much different. I would say that the major theme here is obsession, and to go farther with that, now, Robert doesn't want to lose Vera, and part of this is that he's lost so much already, and I get that. Now, something else that struck me about this is violence towards women. It almost feels like this movie is saying that men cannot control themselves. Robert is holding Vera against her will. The character of Zeka rapes her and then treats his mother poorly. He is a criminal, so there is that. Now, we have Vicenti, who is portrayed by Cornette, while under the influence takes advantage of a young woman who isn't fully on board. Now, he doesn't know about her mental state, and he is also on drugs, but the revenge that is taken upon him is a bit much. I have no issues with a father getting revenge. I do want to establish that, and I'm not siding with, you know, the attacker. The torment that is inflicted, though, isn't necessarily warranted. Now, going along with this last bit here, I think that we're getting is, you know, quite a bit with obsession, as I've already said. Robert can't handle the loss of his wife or his daughter. There's an interesting reveal that connects him with Zekka. The latter does whatever he wants to satisfy his needs, so I guess that's another type of obsession. And then Vigenti is just out to enjoy life until he makes a horrible decision. Vera is also obsessed with getting her freedom, which makes sense to her plight. I think from here I want to take this next to the acting, which was good across the board. Vendaris does well playing this role calmly while also you know, being completely obsessed as I've said. It is an interesting take on the mad scientist for sure. Ananya is good as this young woman being held against her will. She is forced to do things that she doesn't want to do and uses her beauty to her advantage. Now we also have Marisa Paradis and then she is good as the character of Maria and Cornette is solid as this teen male that is you know doing things he doesn't recognize as necessarily being bad. The torment he takes is interesting and I'd say from here the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Now next I should go to the effects and cinematography. For the former we don't get a whole lot to be honest. Despite its mad scientist and sci-fi vibes, they really downplay them. It makes the science that Robert is doing even more believable. The blood we get looks good, and what effects aside from that seem to be practical and I had no issues there. As for the cinematography, I think it is done beautifully. 
The setting is an older mansion, but it has a high-tech lab along with an operating theater. There are old paintings on the wall, and it adds such character, and how it is shot is great. So I'm impressed with this overall. Then really the last thing I want to go into would be the soundtrack. For the most part, it doesn't necessarily stand out, aside from the song that is used in the trailer. There is just a different sound to it, and it's been stuck in my head ever since working at Family Video. It would be a song that I'm going to add to my listening library for sure, but aside from that, I'd say the rest of the selections fit for the you know, vibe of the scenes. So then in conclusion here, I really enjoyed this movie. I'm upset with myself for not taking this home when I worked at Family Video, but I'm lucky that I got to see it on the big screen in the theater for the first time. I think this is an interesting story. It has some brutal elements to it, so the conclusion works that much better. The acting helps to bring the characters to life. I enjoy the mad scientist aspects without leaning too much into them. The cinematography is also good, and along with that main song from the movie, the rest of the soundtrack fits. I would say that the, this is a good movie, and one that I would recommend if what I've said is interesting to you. I will warn you though, this is from Spain, so I do have to watch it with subtitles. And if that is an issue, I would avoid this. But my rating here for The Skin I Live In is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then the last film that I watched for this week is going to be The Tall Man. This is from 2012. This is directed as well as written by Pascal Logier. And then this stars Jessica Biel, Jordel Furland, and William B. Davis. This is a crime drama horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between Canada and France. This is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being when a child goes missing, a mother looks to unravel the legend of the tall man, an entity who allegedly abducts children. Now this is a movie that I was shocked to find that more people hadn't heard of. I originally did when I was working at Family Video. My girlfriend and I at the time were interested in checking this out since it starred Jessica Biel and we thought it was going to be an interesting horror film. I will be honest, we really didn't care for it. Now, I thought it was decent, but was just disappointed. So this is actually one of the movies that caused me, you know, later on to stop watching trailers. And my viewing experience was probably also affected with who I was watching it with since they were so harsh on it. So just kind of give a little bit more background here is before I really start to break this down is I was intrigued to give this a rewatch because of that previous viewing. Because I knew I didn't hate it, but I had my issues with it, but I had heard... I believe Duncan had talked about this on a podcast, you know, I think last year or something along those lines where it had me intrigued. So I did watch this time with Jamie as she was intrigued by the synopsis and she was a bit more open-minded. So we end up watching this together. Now where I want to start would be the actual town that we're in. It is interesting that it's Washington State. I didn't realize until Jamie pointed it out that there are tunnels all over the state. Now I guess Seattle has a bunch and it caused some issues that needed to be corrected. Now this town is in the middle of nowhere and was built as a mining town. When they closed, the town died. There are tunnels and caves that are left behind. This tickles my love of like the old dark house type films where there are like, you know, like secrets underneath the city. With the town being dead, it reminds me of places that are near like my grandparents' ancestral homes as in there at a depression. There's no real money coming in and it's just getting by on like government checks and things like that. So this is actually also an issue that you'll see in ghettos. We are seeing a vicious cycle of poverty where people are having children, showing them you know, how to live and that they're never bettering themselves. They don't instill a work ethic and do not know any better as it's just a, a welfare society. I don't want to be up on the soapbox here, but it is never meant to you know, be a career option. Now I've worked with people like this 
as you know so i've definitely seen that and have tried to help better these people there is a good amount who want to actually break the cycle they just don't know how so this is actually a theme that i think is explored here as jessica beale's character does bring up this whole idea of this vicious cycle now going from there i think the next thing to explore would be the urban legend of the tall man i wasn't shocked to see this is inspired by Slenderman, the creepy pasta now i haven't seen that movie that was actually based on this character and, and, you know, it's been out for a few years, but I do know that it's pretty much universally panned. I do enjoy making my own decisions, though, when it comes to movies like that, but I like where this does end up going. They took the idea and really grounded it in reality. Now, the reveal of the truth here is actually quite interesting to me. It is also sad, but also quite horrible with what is happening here in this town. Then I think the last thing I want to break down would be the town itself. By looking at the people, there is a bit of misogyny here. Julia is looked down upon by Stephen, who is portrayed by Teach Grant, and Julia is, of course, Beale. Now, Stephen is dating Tracy, and Stephen looks down on her because Julia's a nurse. Her husband was actually the doctor here, and he got way more respect. Now, I think partially is due to having more schooling. I also think a lot of this is him being a male, and, you know, Stephen's just a scumbag in general, so I wouldn't put it past him for hating, you know, Julia because she is a woman. Now, all the women in this town seem to respect her, as does this Lieutenant Dodd, who's portrayed by the great Stephen McHattie. Now, he's actually not from this town, though, so that could also be a part of it. Now, he has been pulled here, and that makes things different. Now, I do have the undercurrent feeling that what we're seeing there is how people look at Parker, who is a you know grieving mother as her son is somebody that's been taken by the tall man. But there's just this natural misogyny here due to the isolation of the town and then the normal family unit. So that feels like enough for breaking on the story, so next I'll go to the acting. I think that Beale is quite attractive, but I don't necessarily think she's a great actress. Her portrayal here works, though. They are trying to make her, you know, not look as pretty, but they're also trying to make it look that she is naturally attractive by not wearing makeup. Now, this is, of course, is subtly done by makeup. I did really enjoy seeing Jodel Furland as this was right there near the end of her run when she got a little bit older, but we're still at the height of her popularity, I think. McCaddy is great, even though he really has a limited role. I would say that the other person here to highlight would be, you know, Grant as well as Samantha Ferris. There is an interesting dynamic here. We are seeing the poor mentality through them. He treats her bad and cheats on her with her younger sisters, but no matter what, though, she stays with him. It is toxic, but there's nothing better out there as well. I really like them for that reaction because, you know, anytime an actor or an actress can, you know, give me a reaction, enjoy it more, and I get their plight. And I thought the rest of the cast, you know, works aside from that. Then really the last thing to go into here would be the cinematography and effects. I will go into the latter first. We don't get a lot of them, to be honest, but it also isn't that type of movie. What works here is the car crash that we get, and then the makeup that is done to show Julia as she's been roughed up during her chase. I also think that the framing and the lighting is great when it comes to the tall man. You can't really see who the person is until the reveal, and I like that. The cinematography is also pretty well done, in my opinion. So then in conclusion here, this is a movie that you would think I would like more because of its social commentary, but I do enjoy that part especially with looking at this town and the small-minded mentality that comes with it, pretty much because this semi-reminds me of the town that I'm from. The acting works here to bring these characters to life. I even like the like reveal here of what is actually going on in the lore of the tall man. My issue, though, is that there's just something missing for me. I'm not even necessarily sure what it is. Outside of that problem, I think the cinematography and the effects work. The soundtrack fits for what was needed without necessarily standing out. 
I would say that my rating has come up on this one, and I can, you know, confirm that. This is an above-average movie for me now. It is just lacking something for me to go higher, unfortunately. So my rating here for The Tall Man is going to be a 7 out of 10. Now, I really don't have anything else that I kind of want to go into here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Poison, I meant it. Look. Monty. What's all this about somebody trying to kill Abigail? Where did you find out about that? I gave that to Mother tonight. She bawled me out for it and said she was going to give it back to Abigail in the morning. Oh, then you're the guy that slugged me. Yeah, and I'll do it again any time you train down to my weight. You really want some tea? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I take my tea strong. It makes me sleep better. Mm -hmm. You'll sleep. Saccharin, huh? It keeps your weight down. <laughs> Quite anxious little things, aren't they, huh? Mm, pretty strong for their size, too. Drink, and you'll sleep. Mr. Penny. Hmm? What are you doing with that coffin? Well, the coffin is a very fine hand. Yeah, well, what's that body doing in there? My first featured review here on this episode is going to be The Black Cat from 1941. This is directed by Albert S. Rogel, and the screenplay was co-written amongst Robert Lees, Frederick I. Ronaldo, Eric Taylor, and Robert Neville, and is suggested by the story from Edgar Allan Poe. This stars Basil Rathbone, Hugh Hubert, and Broderick Crawford, while also featuring... Bella Lugosi, Anne Gwynn, Gladys Cooper, Gail Sodergaard, Cecilia Loftus, Claire Dodd, John Elleridge, Alan Ladd, Irville Alderson, Harry C. Bradley, Jack Cheatham, and Edgar Sherrod. This is an adventure, comedy, horror, mystery, romance film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 6.3 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being elderly Henrietta Winslow lives in an isolated mansion with her housekeeper and beloved cats. As her health fails, her greedy relatives gather in anticipation of her death. So this is a movie that I had gotten confused with the 1934 version. Really the reason there is, you know, these titles being so close together and everything, and it's also kind of an issue because they're two different types of movies as well. I do believe both are Universal films. Due to the similar titles, I did have a bit of an issue finding this, but I did find it pretty cheap with a Blu-ray set with three lesser-known Universal titles, so I am pretty excited, even though it kind of annoys me that one of them was Man-Made Monster, which I just watched last week on a streaming service that had a ton of commercials. But before I get into this movie, the director of Rogel has 74 films to his credit. This is the only one that I've seen, and actually the only one that was in the horror genre. 
As for the writers, the first one I'll look at is Lee's. He has 23 credits, four fall into horror. I've seen all of them now with this one here, as this is his first. He followed up with Abbott and Costello's Hold That Ghost. Then he did Abbott and Costello meeting Frankenstein. And then he did them meeting the Invisible Man. Now, I've also seen something else he's written with the Invisible Woman, which is another universal one, not necessarily a horror film, though. And then I've also seen, you know, Abbott and Costello coming around the mountain. Ronaldo is the exec, same number of credits as Lee's. And it looks like they must have been a team as the same four are in horror, and the ones that I've seen from him are the exact same. Then there is Taylor. He has 34 credits in writing. He has five in horror. His first was a movie called Black Friday, which I have seen. He followed it up with this one here. He also did Phantom of the Opera from 1943, which I've also seen that one. And then he also did Son of Dracula, another one that I've watched. Now, his last one is The Spider-Woman Strikes Again from 1946, which this does look to be a universal one, but one that I have not seen till at this point. And we also have Neville. He has three credits. This is the only one that I've seen and the only one that is in horror. And then, of course, since they're giving credit here to Edgar Allan Poe, I would figure I would just say that he has credit for 113 adaptations of his work. Now, I've seen quite a few, but it looks like only 9% of them I have actually seen so far, according to Letterboxd. Now, the next thing would be the acting, and I'll start with Rathbone. He has 94 credits. Of them, 12 are in the horror genre. His first was Son of Frankenstein, which I have seen, and then this was the follow-up there. Now, I have jumped some time, it looks like, because the next one that I've seen that he's been in is The Comedy of Terrors from 1963. And then his last one that he was in was Madhouse from 1974 that I've also seen. Then we have Herbert, who has 116 films. Shockingly, this is the only one that was in horror that he has done and the only one that I've seen. And then lastly, I'll look at Crawford. He's coming in with 96 credits. He has seven in genre. This is his first, and the only other one that I've seen from him was Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby, which is a weird kind of sequel to Rosemary's Baby that was a, I believe, straight-to-TV like type movie there. So we start this movie off hearing a somber piano song being played by Richard Hartley, who is portrayed by Ladd. He is asked to stop by his father of Montague, who is Rathbone. Everyone here is impatient, and the reason is quite horrible. They are all slated to be in the will of Henrietta, who is, in the synopsis states, is on her deathbed. Or at least that's what they think. Also, there is Monty's wife of Myrna, who is Cooper. I believe Henrietta's niece by the name of Elaine Winslow is here, and, and she's portrayed by Gwyn. There's also Margaret Gordon, who is portrayed by Dodd, and Stanley Borden, who is portrayed by Elridge. Catching wind of her potential passing brings A. Gilmore Smith, who is portrayed by Crawford, and he wants to sell the house. He is bringing with him Mr. Penny, who is Hubert, to you know look at the antiques to get an idea of what they have there and what it could be sold for. They arrive at the gate and they meet Eduardo Vitos, who is portrayed by Lugosi. He is the groundskeeper and he informs them that they cannot admit them with their car through the gate. After one of Henrietta's cats were hit, she refuses to let cars through. So they have to go around through a gate nearby instead. Now, also living in this house is Abigail Dune, who is portrayed by Sondergaard. She is the maid, and she is quite close to Henrietta. When the doctor emerges, everyone believes it is news that she has passed. We actually get some quite different thing here, though. She seems to have recovered a bit. She then decides to go through the will, announcing to everyone what they're being left. Some of them are disappointed in how small their you know, inheritance is going to be compared to their other relatives. Everyone that is, aside from Elaine, who is getting the house, the lands, and the balance of the money. But they get interrupted here, and that is thanks to Gilmore and Mr. Penny. 
because what she ends up telling to Mr. Gilmore is that nobody gets anything until after all of the cats on the estate have passed away, as well as Abigail. Either she dies or she moves away of her own free will. Now, things then turn sinister when Mrs. Winslow is murdered in her crematorium. She was superstitious, and a black cat is found in the room with her. Gilmore is convinced that it was murder, while everyone else disagrees. Now, he is in love with Elaine, and she is bothered that he accuses her family of this horrible deed, despite her knowing, you know, how they are. Gilmore tries to prove what he's saying is true. Now, this will lead them to a discoverer's, you know, secret passageways, and someone trying to get Mrs. Winslow's will to kind of make their own sort of alterations. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, and that really gets you, you know, a bit more in-depth what we're getting here from the synopsis. This is your typical old dark house, you know, murder mystery type film. What I did find to be interesting is that they legit killed Henrietta. The person that is behind all of this is ruthless, and what is interesting here is that in my journey through cinema is the fact that I can see where the Italians started to incorporate these type of movies into giallo films. You know, we're getting that murder mystery aspect. It is just lacking in the brutality or the sleaze you would get, you know, in those foreign films. The mystery is something that I want to delve into a bit more here. We are getting this group of people, and all of them have a solid motive to kill Henrietta. Everyone is jealous of Elaine, since the bulk of the estate is going to her. She even has a motive when we learn that Abigail and the cats are technically pushing her out of her inheritance, at least temporarily. Monty has money troubles, and although he's getting a sizable amount, he is still looking for more. Myrna is struggling that her husband could be potentially leaving her, despite being, you know, left 100 grand. Margaret and Stanley are both getting a sizable amount. Richard is getting less, which gives him more of a reason, you know, to potentially hurt somebody. And heck, there's even Gilmore who knows that as long as Henrietta lives, he cannot sell the house and get his commission. I thought all of these red herrings worked, as I didn't figure out until the end at the reveal, you know, of who the killer was. What didn't really work for me here, though, is the comedy. I'm assuming this was added or at least included due to the success of Abbott and Costello films and like the Ghost Breakers. Now it is interesting to see that Leeds and Ronaldo would work with Abbott and Costello, so I can see why they incorporated comedy here. Now the character of Mr. Penny is pretty much here just for that. I think he has good comedic timing and he acts like Mr. Magoo to me. I'm sure it will land with some people, but it didn't really add a whole lot for me overall. I felt that if they would have focused a little bit more on a you know darker tone that I think it would have been better. I do know this is also probably partially due to censors of the era in my opinion of you know why it's a little bit more tame and going a little bit more comedy. Now the last little bit that I want to go off of is that this is supposed to be you know suggested from the Edgar Allan Poe short story. It really isn't outside of the fact that there is a black cat and how there's supposed to be bad luck. This movie is claiming that if a black cat is following you, you are the next to die. I do like incorporating this, you know, like mythology here. And I like how it's used to spook characters. But that is about the extent of it. And, I mean, from what they're using, at least from the short story. If memory serves, that is the one where a cat is tormenting the main character. Well, we don't get a whole lot of that here. I bet it is there to get people to see the movie with the name recognition. Now, I think I should shift this over to the acting. I thought that Rathbone brings an interesting bit of arrogance to the character of Monty. Herbert is, as I said already, adds some comedy as Mr. Penny. I like Crawford as this man who knows something is up, but he's made out to look unreliable because he keeps, you know, crying wolf. He continues to push the envelope, though. And I also think he's really the star here. I like the minor role of Lugosi. I think they're playing with the fact that he's been a villain before and it worked and he just has a creepy look about him in this movie. 
Gwen was attractive, and I like that early on we were introduced that she is a bit selfish. That helps with making me not trust her despite Gilmore wanting to. Cooper is solid as his older woman with nerves that are shot as Myrna. And then Sonnegard is solid as the uptight maid. I like the sassiness that is brought from Loftus as Henrietta. And I'd say the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. And I mean, I'm also a fan to see all of the cats they have in the movie. Then really the last thing I want to go into would be the setting, cinematography, and soundtrack. If you know me, I'm a big fan of the old Dark House films. We have secret passages that allow who our killer is to hide as well as to get to rooms where they're, you know, locked. There is a lot of room here and it makes it difficult to figure out who is behind these things as well. The cinematography gives it character and that works for me. I thought the musical selections fit. The sound design did as well with making it feel like it's storming out. Now I could also tell that the cat yowling was done by a human and not by an actual cat. But I mean it still is fine. I don't really have a major issue there. And then I just have a bit of trivia here for you from the IMDb page where Broderick Crawford's line, he thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, is a gag. At the time he was that this was made, Rathbone was already played in two Holmes films in The Hound of the Baskervilles and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Lugosi had starred earlier in The Black Cat from 34 alongside Karloff, which was an adaptation, all but a darker and more violent one, of the Edgar Allan Poe story. Orson Welles saw this movie and was impressed by cinematographer Stanley Cortez's atmospheric lighting and angling that he hired Cortez to photograph the magnificent Ambersons from 1942, which was set largely in a Victorian-era mansion. I'm pretty sure I've actually seen this one in film class, but it's been a long time. Marlene Dietrich from the Bat cameo in the film is due to her stopping by on a break from filming The Flame of New Orleans from 41 to visit her then-boyfriend of Crawford. She graciously volunteered to fill in for Claire Dodd in a non-dialogue scene after the actress left the studio for the day. That is a human, not a real feline, doing the meows looped in the soundtrack. Universal ordered Lad's billing increase to take advantage of his notoriety in the current Paramount hit, The Gun for Hire from 42. In the trailer, Crawford is credited as Broad Crawford instead of Broderick. Fans of Universal Films of the 40s will recognize the interiors and exteriors of the mansion, and it was utilized in such films as The Night Monster, The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, and Son of Dracula. Both Crawford, replacing Richard Carlson, and Rathbone, replacing Paul Cavanaugh, were late casting changes. Production was delayed nearly a month to accommodate these changes and other production scheduled problems. The Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive DVD box set release of this film includes a reissue trailer from Real Art Pictures that moves Alan Ladd's billing up to second after Rathbone to take advantage of, again, his stardom. Associate producer Burt Kelly was tasked with delivering both this film and Oh Charlie, released as Hold That Ghost, nearly simultaneously. Universal Pictures production number... 1,129, and this is the final film of Cecilia Loftus. So then just to close this out here, this movie is a solid lesser-known Universal film. It isn't necessarily doing anything new. We really have a good setting in this old dark mansion, and I like that this one is a bit more horrific than some of the ones I've seen in the past. The acting is solid to bring these characters to life. I would say that the music and the sound design are fine, and they help to build to the overall product. I don't necessarily think the comedy works all that well, and this really isn't following that much from the Poe short story. This is still worth a viewing if you want to see an early film that would lead into the giallo subgenre that would come out in like you know the late 60s, early 70s. Overall, I would say this is an above average movie, just lacking me going any higher than that. So my rating here for The Black Cat from 1941 is going to be a 7 out of 10. 
Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really feel like there's enough I really need to go into that I haven't already. So I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Every once in a while, I just wake up in bed. He's there. He talks to me. When you summon Sator, he will turn his attention to you. Submit yourself. For he is a consuming fire. And for my second featured review here on this episode is going to be Seder. This is technically was made and it looks like got a little bit of a release in 2019, but it's getting its full release here in 2021. This is written and directed by Jordan Graham. It stars Michael Daniel, Rachel Johnson, and Aurora Lowe, while also featuring Gabriel Nicholson, June Peterson, and Wendy Taylor. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being secluded in a desolate forest. A broken family is observed by Sater, a supernatural entity who is attempting to claim them. Now, this is a movie that I got turned on to thanks to podcasters. I saw this on a list of films that were getting released in 2021, I think even before the year started. Now, there's also some people's opinions that I respect that were talking very highly of this, including my friend from Facebook of Tim, and then Duncan from the podcast Under the Stairs. And I actually got to hear an interview with the writer-director of Graham from Duncan, as well as some other podcasts, which intrigued me even more when they were kind of asking some probing questions. And I mean, I guess it kind of affected my viewing of it because I did this before I watched it, but I don't think it kind of necessarily changed anything because I still kind of came in as blind as I could and experienced as much as well. So before I jump into, you know, my thoughts or anything like that, the director here of Graham currently has two movies that he's directed. The other one is called Spectre from 2014, and I'm going to bring it up a lot here in these featured notes. 
and it looks to be a science fiction horror movie. Now, I haven't heard of that one until now, but I'm interested in checking it out. This is Inspector of the only two credits that he has for writing as well. And then first I'll look at the actor with the last name here of Daniel. He has three credits in this. It appears that he knows Graham as his only two horror films were this Inspector. And he also is in Raymond's Five, which looks to be a drama comedy like family adventure movie. Haven't heard of that one either. Now very similar is the actress of Johnson. She has two credits. Both have been two movies that Graham has written and directed, you know, both in genre, the only two that he's done. This is Lowe's only film so far. And then Nicholson is much like Johnson as well, only having worked with Graham. And I did find it interesting to find out as well that he is the real-life brother of Michael Daniel. So they're playing brothers in this movie, and it's kind of interesting that they are also brothers in real life. Now we start this movie off with an interesting scene. Someone is pouring a liquid on somebody laying down, and then they're set on fire. It then shifts over to a character that we're going to follow for most of this, and it is by the name of Adam, and he's portrayed by Nicholson. He's living in a cabin in the woods, and he goes out shooting like beer bottles with a rifle, but it seems to be he's actually hunting something along with his dog. Now, there is a call that it's using, and it's actually quite creepy, and he keeps also tr checking on a trail camera. There doesn't seem to be anything on the images, though, or at least nothing that I could see after this initial like look at them. And then we actually get introduced to his family. He has a brother of Pete, who is portrayed by Daniel, along with his sister of Deborah, who is portrayed by Lowell. They visit quite a bit with their grandmother of Nani, who is portrayed by June Peterson. What is interesting here is that Peterson is actually playing herself. She is the real-life grandmother to Graham, and the base of the story is from her automatic writing she did, an encounter she had with this entity that spoke to her by the name of Sater. As the synopsis states, the family is broken. Adam seems to have lost his wife or girlfriend or something along those lines. I didn't necessarily pick up if she had left him or she passed away, but regardless, he's distraught. Adam has isolated himself after whatever happened to her. Pete is struggling himself, and Deborah is doing all that she can to keep his family together. This family knows tragedy as their grandfather, who was named Jim, passed away along with all these children's mother. Not at the same time, but they all have passed away, you know, in time. Now, when they're visiting with Nani and she is telling them stories, Adam is told by his brother that he thinks the error with taking pictures with a trail cam is something to do with the memory card, that there might be just something wrong with that. So Adam switches it out with another one that he finds in this tote and takes it back and, you know, puts it inside of the camera. What ends up happening here is it takes an eerie image of the trees and darkness. This is an image that is haunting Adam's dreams along with other things. He thinks he's finally got Sater's attention as well when he is visited by a creepy entity. The question is, did he really meet Sater or is all of this in their head? Does Nani also communicate with this being as well or is there some mental illness here that's actually the explanation? Now that is where I'm going to leave my recap as this movie doesn't have the most complex story but it also doesn't need it. What this movie does have for it though is atmosphere. Going back to the synopsis, we have this family that they all live outside of town. I can understand this as I grew up for the second half of my childhood out in the country. Not as far out as they did here or are living because Adam legit is living in a cabin in the woods. The rest of the family isn't that much, you know, much more civilized around them as they're definitely, you know, not too far from where he's living and still outside of town. There aren't a lot of people around, really dark at night, and I mean really dark. 
not living in the city dark as this really happened to make it even creepier when things like this or characters go out into the woods to investigate which is how dark it is it really kind of has an oppressive feel to it that works and this feeling of isolation now what makes it even scarier is that graham is basing this all off of his real life grandmother of peterson as i have stated she claimed that after a seance in the late 60s she was visited by an entity called Seder. It would speak to her, and she had journals and journals of auto-writing from this. She stated that she would speak directly into her mind. I do believe from an interview that he confirmed that she ended up being diagnosed with schizophrenia. Graham also said that other family members had a similar mental illness and that they also confirmed speaking with Seder. There's actual interviews with Nani here that are recounting what she believed to be real. Now, we also have real recordings of her and her actual journals are being used in the movie. This gives us a good touch that he decided to make this movie based off of something that she really thought was happening to her and actually using the real documentation from her as as well as this adds another element of realism for me. Now I'm thinking that this is more mental illness but for a movie it adds a creepiness factor as well. Now where I want to go next would be the two options to explain what we have going on here. The first is that there could be really a supernatural entity in these woods. I actually think for this movie it is really what we're getting here. It is quite creepy to see these figures in animal furs, you know, wearing skulls of like deer and other animals. They don't speak. They all have bald heads and they really just stand there and stare. It was effective for me for sure. Once Adam looks more at the pictures that he looked at at the trail cam, it really starts to ramp things up as well. And it almost feels like he might be blacking out and losing time or he can't sleep or things like that. So I mean, these all could be contributing factors to the next explanation though. And, I mean, this movie does have some pretty wild things that goes on for the third act, and that was effective as well. So what I was alluding to here is the other explanation would be mental illness. Adam is dealing with some heavy things, and he's isolated himself in the woods. It really seems that whenever he sees something, he's alone. He has been listening to the stories from Nani and knows what happened to his mother. He is so desperately wants Seder to be real, so he is descending into madness. I can see someone giving a reading of this movie to be in line, you know, with this line of thought. I would say that is about the extent of the story that I want to delve into, so I'm going to move next to what I think this movie really does well is atmosphere. The first aspect here would be the cinematography. I thought that Graham shot the heck out of this movie. The isolation of the woods is something you can just feel. It looks beautiful. There's also some surreal sequences and shots. There is ones where everything is black and there is just this fire burning or we're seeing adam bathed all in white this really makes it seem like we aren't sure what is real and what isn't now there's also some good editing here i also like that there is this black and white footage that is being used and then the actual stuff is shot in black and white and then graham did a really good job of editing in real home movies that add another sense of realism to what we're getting to see here so another thing here I would like to go into would be the sound design and the soundtrack. This was something else that he also did, because, I mean, he wore so many hats for this movie. He utilized whispers that make the shots that aren't necessarily scary feel that way, and he actually made all of the music, and not all of it with instruments. I found this to be pretty interesting as well as how well it fits for the movie with the vibe that it's going for and really needs to have. I was impressed, to be honest. So then next, I think I'll shift this over to the acting. Nicholson has an interesting performance. He really doesn't talk much, he looks intense with his facial expressions, and there's a real sense of fear on his face at different times. Now Daniel is solid as Pete, he really interacts with Nani, which is nice to see, even though they're not related in real life, and they're, you know, acting like they are, so she could kind of recount the events and everything, which is what I'm assuming Graham did to kind of know some of this stuff. 
Now, Rachel Johnson adds another creepy level as the character of Evie. I thought Lowell was solid as the sister and Taylor in her limited role as the mother. Then finally, we have Peterson. She's really just playing herself, which almost has a documentary feel to it. And I do enjoy this. The last thing here would also be that those that play the entities in the woods, I thought their look and how they don't really say anything is quite creepy. So then the last thing before I get into trivia would be the effects. There aren't a lot of them, and I'm assuming part of this was due to budget. But this movie, though, I believe Graham knew the limitations, so he didn't need a lot of them as well. What we do get here is done practically, which I'm always a fan of. And then there's some tricks with camera angles and cinematography, which really helps there as well. So I would say this is well done regardless. And as I was saying, some trivia that I found on the IMDb page is all of the automatic writings you see in the film were written by June Peterson in 1968. She is obviously Graham's grandmother. Sater is very real to June, and he first came to her in 1968 through a Ouija, and her obsession with him led to her being committed to a psychiatric hospital. Sater has been in post-production for almost six years due to the solo work and budget limits of the director. June Peterson passed away shortly after the film was completed, so she never got to see the final product, which is sad. Graham created the score using pots, pans, nuts, bolts, and a bass guitar with a violin bow. For the birthday party flashback, Graham used a Hi8 video camera to record the actors. Then in editing, he incorporated real home video footage of his grandparents from the early 1990s into the scenes, which I think is another good aspect here. Took seven years for him to make this. Graham performed nearly every job behind the camera, including building the cabin. Filming lasts for 120 days, where most consisted of only director Graham and one or two of the actors. He also had to learn how to color grade the film in DaVinci Resolve, which took him a thousand hours. Except for the scenes with Peterson, the film's entire soundtrack was created in post-production. Graham recorded all sound effects fully and dialogue from scratch, taking him a year and four months. And then Michael Daniel, who is Pete, met June Peterson while on camera pretending to be her grandson. So then, in conclusion here, this is a movie that I'm glad I saw. It doesn't have the most complex story, but it also doesn't need it. What is really interesting is that it's based on the real writings and beliefs of Graham's grandmother, of Peterson. Incorporating some of the real material really adds another layer here. The acting is good in helping bring this to life. What effects we get here are as well. The atmosphere really is a strong part with the cinematography, location, and sound design, along with the music selections. If I do have any issues here, I do think the story could be tightened up just a bit. Regardless, I like the concepts we are exploring, and this is one that I'll rewatch for the end of the year to see if I might have missed something or to see how this holds up after that second watch. So my rating here for Seder is an 8 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section because this is still pretty new. A lot of people I don't think have seen this one yet, and I would recommend giving this one a viewing, especially if everything I said here sounds good. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last brief break before I close out the show. And I want to welcome you back one last time. And then just to close everything out here on episode number 84, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you would like to have read on the show, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile, that's all one word, at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, David OSU, where I will post all of the reviews for you know everything on here as well as any of the non-horror movies that I review. 
And then on Instagram, I will have all the posters of everything that, you know, I review, and that's DavidOSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And to make it easier on you, I will have all of those links in the show notes as well. And then the last thing I would ask for you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well as if you're able to rate and review, it'd be greatly appreciated if you could do that just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like and make this the best show possible. So now for episode number 85, it's probably going to end up being a little bit lighter because I know I've actually been, you know, having these, you know, a little bit longer episodes where I've been able to watch a little bit more and, you know, trying to watch all the movies for the Summer Challenge series also kind of helps as well. But I am going on my bachelor party, so it's going to be a little bit shorter week. shouldn't affect the release date or anything like that. But I'm not really necessarily sure what two movies I'm going to do. There is a movie shown at the Gateway Film Center that if I can work in watching that, and that movie's called Censor, I'm going to try to do that. If not, though, I do believe what I'll end up doing is watching for 2021 will be the movie Sun. And I think it might make an interesting pairing watching that with the movie of The Invisible Ghost that sounded like they might actually make an interesting type double feature. And of course, I will have at least, you know, one mini review to include on there as well. So I think that's really all I had to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 